Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and joining me is senior technical reporter on venture capital, Becca Skutak. How is the East Coast, Becca? It is cold, Natasha. It is a bummer, but definitely not as bad as some of the weather other parts of the country are seeing. So no complaints. How is the West Coast? I know. West Coast is fine. Honestly, it's kind of cloudy and I'm just like, I don't like anything. So that's where I'm at right now. (laughs) Perfect. Marianne is also not joining us today because as you alluded to, weather, Austin, nothing's okay. Yeah. Dealing with some ice and power outages down there, which especially as we've mentioned before we got on this uh, recording, when it is cold, that is easily the worst time for your power to go out. Um, So sending Marianne good vibes and sort of a fast recovery on the energy front. And that concludes Equity's weather update. Let us know if you want us to be your weather people from now on. Like and subscribe. I know, right? Um, this show's going to be fun, though. We have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about a new social app being built by Instagram's co-founders. We're going to talk about another Twitter rival. And we're finally going to end with a look at one of the firsts when it comes to building a startup about disability accommodations. And then our two big themes to talk about this week will be around venture funding coming back or if that's really a thing and um, to end climate tech and some exciting news there. But let's start with the news that I feel like, Becca, not enough people are talking about. Have you heard about the Instagram co-founders coming back and building something? What? Yeah, like just a little bit though. Maybe we should sort of fill the listeners in on what the app does first. And then I have kind of a maybe a quip or a jab at the founders okay. I think already. Here for it. So Instagram's co-founders, Kevin Seistrom, I don't say these names out loud ever. Kevin Seistrom and Mike Krieger have launched a new consumer social company. It's a newsreader. It's called Artifact. And a quick kind of blurb from our story from Sarah Perez quote, Artifact will first present a curated selection of news stories, but then these will become more attuned to user interests over time. Some of the articles will come from big name publishers like the New York Times, while others may be from smaller sites. Other key features on this newsreader will include anything from comment controls to separate feeds for articles posted by people you follow alongside their commentary and a direct message inbox for discussing posts more privately. Sounds like AI is going to be a part of it too, uh, just an algorithm that adapts to your reading preferences more over time. But I'll pause there, Becca, so you can deliver on your promise. What do you think? Well, on the one hand, I think a newsreader app like this that sort of recommends content is such a good idea because, I mean, there are certain people I follow on, say, Twitter where like if they post an article about something, I'm going to read it. It doesn't yeah. matter if they wrote it because I just like trust their judgment or like they read some more stuff that I like. And so that type of a model, especially looking at the background of how successful TikTok has been, this makes a lot of sense. But I, the whole time I was reading this story, the thing playing in the back of my mind is I was like, what is the moderation going to look like on this? This <laughs> sounds like a rocket ship to like fringe ideas, conspiracy theories, the same way that like some of the other algorithm based social media apps get knocked for kind of pushing people down those rabbit holes. I just can't really see the how this would be different. And in some ways, I'm like, can AI not be the edge that you're betting on? Like, can it not be 
this like vague algorithm that's going to choose it because I don't trust a lot of that. But I mean, and even when we were talking about on Twitter a little bit, like I do think that is your question is the question everyone has. So to put my optimistic hat on, I feel like the co-founders have to be prepared. Like they are not some unheard of founder that people are going to give, you know, the benefit of the doubt to. They're going to probably have more questions around moderation than any other consumer social founder right now, especially because they're trying to bring news into it. Like journalists with comeback founders with a Facebook and meta tie, like it's kind of that perfect storm of I have questions. (laughs) Right. And I do agree with you. At least it is like these two founders that are tackling this because I know they fought Meta and Facebook back on some of the like changes that they wanted to put on Instagram that a lot of users still don't really like. So I definitely think as far as like two entrepreneurs to kind of tackle an app like this, I definitely have more confidence knowing it's them because they have so much experience in sort of these types of social apps to begin with. And they definitely, their head seems to be in the right place about kind of protecting for some of these things. But I mean, even with good intentions, some of this stuff can get out of hand really quickly. So I'm hoping that before they launch, they at least have like a good team kind of focused on like that kind of moderation. Right. It's like it's 2023. So like maybe we're going to do something different this time, but at least it's not 20, like 12 or 2016 or any of those crazy years. Last note I had was, I'm just curious how you consume news. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. But when you said the bit about like, there's people you read that you just know that they're going to have good stuff. I feel the way about you. I feel that way about like a handful of reporters um, in tech, but I don't know if it's a reporter habit or just like a general person habit to be like, I will read anything by this person. And I guess you can't speak for the non-reporter perspective, but I just wanted to throw that out there is like how our habits even work with like a newsreader type platform. Yeah. Cause see, like, I don't know, like I got as much as I get consuming news in this way and like doing it in sort of like a piecemeal other type of form. Yeah. I just don't know if I would want to consume all of my news in like one app in like one way like this is sort of proposing. Because it's like I have certain accounts I follow for like the sports stories I know I'm going to want to read from them. And then it's like newsletters for different areas as well as like anything about food I'm getting from like the New York Times newsletter. I'm linking from there. So like there's just so many different sources to get there. So yeah, I don't know. This will It'll be interesting to see. Because I know Sarah mentions in the piece, there are multiple things like this and things that have sort of been launched and have been have since shut down, like Google's version of this. that shut down literally 10 years ago. Yeah. So I am curious to see, but maybe with the TikTok algorithm, this will kind of capture people who are used to consuming media in that sort of algorithmic way. So who knows? I mean, let's see. I definitely blame a lot of Twitter's volatility, let's say that, around just like the new boom in social apps, which brings us to our next deal of the week. Becca, one of them really caught your eye and it's another Twitter rival somehow, some way. So we're looking at the deal that was announced this week for an app called Spill, meant to be sort of a Twitter alternative. Of course, as a lot of people have smartly said, nothing is really trying to be a direct one-to-one comparison with Twitter and no one really can. So no issue there. But I just thought this interesting for a few reasons. One, this is a person who the founder has someone who was affected by the Twitter layoffs. So definitely someone with knowledge of kind of that kind of a social app and sort of building in that space to begin with, which is pretty promising. Yeah. The other thing, it raised $2.75 million in a pre-seed round, which is a pretty good pre-seed round, especially considering how young this app is. They were affected by the layoffs. The founder was affected by the layoffs that just happened a few months ago. Oh my God. So very <laughs> new company, able to raise a very 
sizable pre-seed round to begin with. And the other thing is the founders are, it's a founder of color, which we all know, we all read Dom's fantastic coverage of sort of the lack of funding that goes to underrepresented founders in the industry. So seeing like a really healthy size round for any pre-seed founder for a company led by a person of color, very new company, someone with pretty good domain expertise in that area. That's a great thing. Like that's a great round to keep an eye on. And I already has 60,000 people have reserved handles. That's probably people and companies, but that's pretty notable. I also always love like the stat around like handle reservations, like even as like big and cool as tech has gotten, like we're all nerdy enough and want to reserve our handles. And it just warms my heart to see these companies kind of get that initial boom. But to your point, it definitely like makes me take it more seriously too, right? Like, I mean, there's been already like dozens, I'm sure ones that we don't even know about or won't get pitched ever or even see that are trying to build Twitter clones for them to get real backing from someone who is from Twitter. I just feel like that means that there's some serious hope that we're going to find, at least from a group of investors, people believe, you know, this was led by Mac Venture Capital and the Kapoor Center with participation from Sunset Ventures. These are big, real VC firms. They're not just angel mm-hmm. investors or our friends and family round, which says a lot. It's also interesting talking about this deal and Artifact kind of back to back, because one of the things that worries me about Artifact sort of, do they have that team that's going to kind of watch how the algorithm will sort of point people? Based on the early founders at Spill, the article said there's there's about 10 employees so far. These employees have the background to fight that kind of misinformation and that kind of rabbit holing, it seems. They all have sort of like either content moderation backgrounds or just diverse individuals who are going to bring those different perspectives that I think a lot of the issues we see on some of the broader social media platforms could have avoided had they just built differently from the start. And it seems like Spill is just being very intentional about that stuff. And that's always good to see. Yeah, I love that. And it's like, in a way, I feel better about it because it's only going to succeed if it works. No one's going to leave Twitter for something that's worse or more dangerous or or ugly or anything like that. Like, I feel like it's only going to actually get traction if it does what it promises. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about T2 too, because T22, um, because it's also built by former Twitter people. And like, I talked about this a little bit with like Connie and I was like, is Twitter not mad that people who have this like Intel that you just spoke about are building rivals? Like, yes, they got laid off. Yes, NDAs are hard to enforce. But like, am I missing something there? It feels a little bit like I'm here for it, but... Is anyone questioning it? Am I alone in questioning it? Have you thought about this? That's such a good point. And I hadn't thought about it. But the first thing that came to my head is that, like, honestly, if Twitter was maybe run by someone else, we'd be seeing more of, like, a scuffle about this. But Elon's ego, he's going to be like, oh, no one's going to be able to surpass us. Like, try me. Right. Yeah. Like, he probably is, like, welcoming, (laughs) like, oh, this is funny. Like, you raised your little pre-seed round, whatever. I mean, if he's listening, which I know he's not. Sorry if that's (laughs) not how you think about this. But um, I just think if these companies end up getting actual traction, we will definitely start to see some weird back and forths there. I don't want to immediately be like lawsuits, but like you never know. That is so true. Yeah. I just think because everything is just so little, so like popping up, still like coming off the ground now, we're not hearing of anything. But I hadn't thought about that. You make a great point. If these companies end up being really successful, it's going to get really weird. You're so right. Like, I mean, honestly, maybe even the moment a celebrity tweets about it or like, I don't know, I'm trying to think like if we could see a chart of like who who Elon replies the most to on Twitter, like if one of those people become an angel investor in this, like that's what's going to matter more than like the earnest building that's happening right now. Like it's probably too early. No, for sure. I mean, this won't happen, but 
hypothetically, like if Donald Trump joined one of these platforms, oh, like my God, Elon's ego would just crumble. <laughs> <laughs> like it would just be so bad. You know what? Like, let's see. I remember when like TikTok was going to get bought, like we were joking on equity that like, oh, like Danny was like, oh, like what if Oracle buys it? And then like there was rumors and, and all to say I feel like equity has some weird, weird coincidences here. So you heard it here first in case this happens. But let's move to our final deal of the week. Unlike social media and consumers, which has dozens, this startup wants to be one of the firsts in its space. It's called Disclow. And it is all about trying to make it easier for employees to share their disability with their employers and ask for accommodations. While on the employer side, it helps them be compliant and show up for those disabilities and verify that they are disabilities that they can support and that they can kind of have all that proof in the paperwork. And they raised $6.5 million in total, $5 million in a seed round, a YC grad. I was really excited about it because, I mean, yes, they, they claim to be one of the only companies that are developing software to help with disabilities and help with people requesting accommodations. And I just, I don't know, I kind of like the idea of how this works in a remote work setting too, because so many disabilities are invisible. Reading this, the first thing that came to mind is actually like a personal connection. Someone I know, actually, they were working at a company for a number of years. They have a chronic gastro kind of condition and they needed sometimes some accommodations for that. And usually the company they worked for was pretty accommodating, but they honestly got so tired of asking and so tired of having to remind them and so tired of having to like, oh, yep, no, this is still happening, that they left. Wow. They literally found a new job. And when you talk to them about it, they loved the company. But a big part of why they left is they felt so much of their time was taken up by sort of going back and forth about the accommodations that they needed and were legally protected to get. And it was sort of like what this piece gets into, sort of the concept that a lot of disabilities that some people are facing are not very easy to tell about someone. And this was the case here. It's a gastro condition. It's a stomach issue. It's not something you're going to see by like looking at the person. So they found a lot of struggle there. So that's the first thing that stood out to me about this is that definitely instant realization of the need there for something like this. I can't get started on like how much it frustrates me when I realize like how companies can sometimes be covered because they have the policies in place. But then like when it actually comes to the burden that stays on the person, and it's like, oh, yeah, like on paper, you can do this. Like you can talk about your disability and ask for accommodations. But like that anecdote you gave was perfect where it's like it has to be more than just like it exists as a route because there is such a difference between having to email your manager about your disability, which is what Hannah, the, the CEO, said is often the status quo versus going to a startup that actually, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, they anonymize it. So the employer doesn't know what the employee's condition is. They just know that they have a disability and that these accommodations are what they need for that disability. Disco kind of like is the third party that verifies and gets the accommodations, but takes it out, which in some ways combats the stigma, they argue. But I think about some of the things that you can't see when it comes to disabilities. And I'm like, oh, I feel like that just like helps you not have to explain yourself consistently too. No, I'm honestly not sure what I think about that aspect of it. Because I definitely feel for some people that's going to be such a helpful thing. Like, okay, maybe someone who has the type of disability that their manager is already aware of, then it's kind of just like, we don't have to keep talking about it. Maybe the accommodations you're asking for sort of reveal what the condition is anyway. So there like, isn't much room for sort of questioning there. But I also think if employers are not very good at sort of being forthcoming or sort of being accommodating in these ways, it being anonymous I just have a hard time believing that would always sort of protect the employee from like additional questioning 
from the employer. Because I just feel like if the employer gets something like that and they don't know what the condition is and maybe it's never come up before, they might be more questioning about it as opposed to getting an official diagnosis. And is that a good thing? No. But is that seem more in line with reality? Kind of. So that's not like a great thing that that would be the case. But that's kind of how I picture that playing out. Just knowing especially the people who would need this the most are the people working in places that are probably the least willing to just sort of give those accommodations without being asked or without like asking questions. I think you're completely scratching at the right thing because I think it's one of the most innovative parts of Disclode, the anonymous side of it, but it's not like perfect. Should we be worrying that companies needed to be anonymous? Is that really combating the stigma or should they be able to have a smart conversation about this without it being Mm -hmm. hidden? Yeah, I agree. Some of the vagueness of it could even create more bias toward the person because you don't know what they're going through. Maybe you don't have empathy for them. And I don't know. No, that's kind of how I always think about these things where I'm like, hmm, I have my opinion about like what this could be like, how this could be in practice. But if the CEO and founder sort of launched with this being sort of one of those selling points and one of those differentiators, she would know. Yeah. Like we wouldn't know. So this must be like a thing that she thinks will help combat that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have spent so much time making that part of the product and sort of making sure to highlight that part of the product, especially too, when kind of putting out that type of like marketing and stuff like that. So I definitely seems like something that maybe we just like don't have enough knowledge to speak on. Yeah, yeah. Well, things we do have knowledge to speak on getting into our first trend is the most Becca and Natasha trend. It's about venture funding. Woo, crazy. Yeehaw. (laughs) Big yeehaw energy. Connie wrote a piece this week and I can't believe it's already February. It's published January 30th. And I mean, she just listed off all of these funds. NEA closed two new funds, adding up to 6.2 billion. Cowboy, two funds, 260 million. FJ Labs, two funds, 260 million. Um, There's Volition Capital, Kearney Jackson, Sapphire Sport, Dimension, non-US firms like Highland Europe and a Japanese chemical giant that just revealed a 100 million fund. I mean, I can list more and more, but it feels like there's just kind of this huge flurry in the new year, new me category. Like what, how are you thinking about this big, big flurry of funds? Well, I think what stood out to me the most about these funds is the fact that, and I can't speak for all of them, but some of the ones like NEA and some of the ones like Defy, which raised 300 million for their third fund, these actually didn't close recently. These closed quite a while ago and they're sort of choosing to announce now, which is totally common. I mean, every sort of, Venture funding announcement, fund announcement, those are all, those all have a lag. So like, there's no funky business there. But what stood out to me is Defy saying that they chose not to announce the fund because they were still investing out of their previous fund Mm. until a few months ago. And that stood out to me because I have a feeling they're not the only ones waiting to do that. And that's very telling because most of the time, by the time a firm closes a fund, especially over the last few years, and you interview them, they're like, oh, yeah, it's already a third deployed or it's already half deployed. Like, we only have $10 left, actually. So I think these funds choosing to wait to disclose actually is like very telling that venture funding is down still because it took them so much longer to, you know, deploy that last fund because they obviously raised the funds in time for when they needed them. Right. The fact that they closed them, didn't start investing before they closed them, waited and are now announcing them kind of says funding is still slow. Okay. I'm following that because I was going to say say more because a part of me was like, okay, if you have not invested out of a fund that you're announcing, are you just like being more 
honest about the timeline. Mm-hmm. When I saw that, I was like, finally, it's not just like, I realize I'm being earnest here, but this like PR timed announcement that happens just when you're finally ready for the inbound. Like it's like you actually haven't started investing. It's actually true that you closed a new fund and it's open for you. But it sounds like you heard it a completely different way, which is interesting. Yeah. And I think I'm just looking to that lens because so many funds start deploying because they need to. They have like good opportunities and they like can't wait for that perfect time to announce to start putting that money to work. So having these funds kind of sitting on this capital, which I mean, if these funds closed in middle, late 2022, I mean, the numbers back that up. Funding was down. So I think that kind of shows that they have all this money, which isn't I'm not saying this is inherently like a bad sign about the market. They these funds now have all this money that they haven't started deploying yet that's great if the market starts to pick up again. Those are two huge sources of capital. Like That's not a bad thing at all in the startup market. But it definitely does show that funding has slowed down enough that the timing of when you announce, when you start deploying these funds is still delayed, which says something in itself. Totally. And I do think like the timing of the announcement still does come into play because it gives them the appearance of looking like they are entering the year strong. And in a way, it gives me the same vibe as like someone saying that they have like an oversubscribed fund because it's just like a target that they set. As we know, and I have been reminded recently, like investors don't just have this money in their account. They have to do capital calls and stuff like that. So it's just a little bit of like a, I don't know, now I'm questioning the existence of venture fund stories, which maybe is a separate conversation. That is, I mean, maybe you agree, but like nothing's more frustrating when you cover a fund, especially like a smaller fund. And you're like, cool, like, have you started deploying the capital? And they're like, we have room for one more company. And you're like, why did you wait this long? Right. I don't know. It's frustrating. And it's definitely like, it's not even just like the press wanting to like get a firm like does that not kind of annoy the firm when they get inbound from so many people but have no opportunity to talk about it I don't know I don't know if you saw the Tiger Global news from the journal it was in our notes I was kind of surprised by them cutting fundraising targets like I don't know I feel like no one really shares that until they do it or maybe they didn't share it it was just the scoop no I think that's going to be something we're going to see more and more because even these funds that waited to deploy these are still absolutely holdovers from lots of 2021 commitments and then none of these names which again none of this is like a negative or a knock but like these are like like cowboy ventures nea defy like those are firms with real returns real sort of solid theses easy to follow very straightforward firms as far as the whole like scale of venture capital firms go because there's some real weird structures in there and some real weird focus areas these are not those firms so I think we're going to see lots of sort of cuts to fundraising targets for people who do go out to raise this year, next year. Yeah. Because I know even looking at, I do the very fun task of going through public pension fund meeting docs once a week. You're the best. I love to torture myself. No, I'm (laughs) kidding. They're really, they're kind of funny to go through (laughs) sometimes, but I can see from some of those, there are a lot of big pension funds that are like, no, we're still investing in private equity. No, we're still investing in venture capital. But the budget to do that, the amount they're allocating is absolutely less. Wow. So I definitely think fund, we'll see more funds cutting their fundraising target, which I mean, valuations are going down as they say they're going to and round sizes don't continue to get bigger. This kind of doesn't matter. Like, I feel like if you cut your fund size as valuations are going down and as deals are getting smaller, you probably are investing in about the same amount of deals. Maybe it's easier to manage less money. I don't know if these are really bad things in reality. 
I also don't think it's a bad signal to close a smaller fund. And I'll say that like every week if I have to. And I know the signal and blah, 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 blah. But I'm just like, wait, actually, if it makes sense for your firm, who cares about signal? Just do the thing that's going to get you better returns. Then you can leak your returns to us and we can include that in our next piece. Because I don't know, I feel like it's worth taking the ego hit of closing a smaller fund for whatever reason, if that means you get outsized returns. Ugh. Yeah, short ego hit, because then in like five years, when all these funds go back out to market, you're going to be like, <laughs> I have better returns because I raised a smaller fund in a bad market. Oh my God, and like, exactly. Then you're going to raise a larger fund again. Like, it's like, I yeah, fund size has always been the like dynamics of how people plan what size fund to raise, I find like infinitely interesting. And this is why we are on equity and not in VC. Last question I have in the VC category is just like a topic that's been coming up with VCs recently, both on Twitter and in conversations, just like how like there's a lot of manifesting going on right now. Let's use the piece we're talking about today, which is this flurry of new VC funds. It gives the appearance that venture is back. It's loud. It's bigger than ever. And people are closing record-sized funds. Is that just VCs wanting to show that things are fine and then actually acting differently? Or I guess I'm wondering in your conversations, if you feel like VCs are leaning one way or other, or you find people disagree with each other when it comes to conversations, but then just appear excited when they're in public. Something I found covering VC for just the short number of years that I have is no matter what the market is, everyone is kind of doing something different than what they're telling you. (laughs) And I don't mean that to say people are like purposely being deceptive because I don't, in most cases, I don't believe that's the case at all. That's just how, you know, to use a lame expression, how the cookie crumbles. Yeah, It just seems like people end up doing things that doesn't really align with what they tell you. But I think as we were mentioning earlier, planning around when you announce stuff like a funding round or these kind of funds is, has always been intentional. Like people have always picked when the right time is. I mean, according to every startup, that right time always falls on a Tuesday, but like (laughs) weirdly enough, but there's always been that intentionality. So I don't know, like coming this year, I totally get why people are maybe propping up the funds now and sort of showing that they are open for business. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think about it? I like, I kind of feel like it's fine because we're kind of used to dealing with this all the time in venture. Yeah, I think it's fine. I think it's something that like clearly we both know and can work around and be aware of. I think I had to learn that over time though. Like I think when I first started reporting on tech, I was like, oh my God, like things are crazy this week. Like today, these three startups all raised this money today. And it's like, I've definitely changed my mind about that since it's been a few more years. I think the thing that's frustrating to me is how advice never ages well. Mm. I forget who tweeted this, but this week someone said something like, since like 2016, VCs have been saying valuations are too high. Has a VC ever tweeted saying valuations are too low? It's too easy for me to do this right right now. Like, And so I just think that like that, if I was a founder, is difficult. It reinforces that it's all about who you know, who's going to give you the most authentic advice because like there are so many layers of people just like kind of acting, even if it's understood, it's still confusing. Definitely. Let's end on a similar note because a lot of venture capitalists who are probably listening have been thinking about climate tech, the most specific kind of vertical out there. I can only think of one company that fits climate tech and I'm being sarcastic. There's so much here, Becca. Where do we start? Yes. Yes. No, that intro is perfect because (laughs) we're thinking well, looking at sort of like what's happened this week, and obviously, as you just mentioned, these deals didn't actually close this week, <laughs> but they all chose to announce this week, which yeah. gives us a good signal. There's just a lot of interesting deals in climate tech this week. And I think most interestingly, they're not similar to each other. And they're all raising weird amounts of money. Like for one, our next energy, it's a battery company. They raised 300 million. That's a lot. 
And then we have an insect breeding technology. I don't want to read more about that, but that raised five million. <laughs> and then one about fo uh, focused on the bee population raised eight million. So I think this is a really good start to the year for the category because I know, especially ending last year, I did an investor survey. I know I've mentioned this on the pod a few times already, but one of the questions was, "What's the next big bubble?" And while pretty much everyone and their mother wrote generative AI, two people wrote climate tech. Which at first I thought was kind of a hot take, but they both explained themselves and said, we're still putting funding behind a lot of crap in climate tech. And that stuff is just still not going to work out. But this is a really healthy sign. None of these categories fit into the areas they think are not going to end up being successful. And it shows that there's just a lot of really interesting ideas coming to this space. What are you thinking about it? Very similar to you in that, like, there's this weird thing where, like, people are anti-tourist in VC. They're like, it's hype. It's hype, hype, hype. Everyone knows the issues with hype. The positives of hype are just that so many people are starting to think about this, asking questions. People who have no reason to be in the climate world are starting to form a language around it which I always just feel like is super healthy. It happened to EdTech and so many companies kind of got bumped up and now bumped down because of it. So of course there's like the sadness that happens when the tourists leave. But I'm just thinking a lot about like the progress that's being made and just people thinking about climate. I was reading an article, I think from Wired and David Abraham, the author of the book, The Elements of Power said something that I'm still thinking about. He said, we need to invest in the science of understanding the impacts of the products that we're making. Basically, it doesn't mean you should stop buying those products or, or making them, but you should start investing in the thinking behind them. And that's what I imagine the silver lining is here, like the three rounds you just mentioned. I'm, I'm just hoping it's, it's the science that people are now using that money to figure out, not just like consumer adoption. And it really is just nice to see some of these rounds. Like they're not fully backed by like climate tech investors. As you mentioned, there are other people kind of coming into these rounds and sort of taking a look. And I know from like the carbon space, obviously EVs has been huge over the last few years and like carbon capture. But you weren't hearing as much about some of these other areas. So it's nice to see them get some funding, too, because there's just as I seem to know, I'm now like the climate correspondent on this podcast. <laughs> I feel there are so many areas that need help. And it's always good to see solutions, even going into those more niche areas. Everywhere needs help. So more solutions is just a positive. Yeah, right. The only way we get there is by this energy. So let's be energetic about it. My last question for the podcast if you had to pick a bubble that you would want to be an investor in right now, would you pick AI or would you pick climate? I feel like I know the answer, but <laughs> hmm. I think I'd probably pick climate. I don't know. Maybe because climate tech like already had like a boom and bust. I think despite the fact that I think a lot of these areas that are getting funding may not end up being successful. I think the losers are going to lose less hard in climate tech than the losers in generative AI. I think <laughs> the people who lose in generative AI are going to be like, we work as disasters. Like, you can hold me to that. I think there's going to be some companies where we're just like, holy shit, that got funding three years ago. That's crazy. And I don't really feel that way as much about climate tech. What about you? I love that you said the phrase losers in generative AI. Like, I just feel like that's so funny. <laughs> um, I feel like the story, right? The story of climate startups is so much more in the favor of like these people having like inspiring endings to their startups than a chatbot that helps customer service agents move faster. Like, and I think that's, right. you know, I'm being intentionally rude about that because I think AI has power to change the world. I will say like, 
I'll pick AI as mine just to play devil's advocate. I feel like I'm just so excited about what it means for like creation and future of work. And I feel like, okay, if I was just an investor and thinking about returns, I would say that AI feels more likely to get scooped up and like this mass consolidation than climate, because I feel like climate's all very like proprietary and separate and like we're not even near the partnership world as much versus AI. I feel like everyone could be the same company and I wouldn't be surprised because they like all share the same technology. For a returns perspective, you are totally right. Because like I said, one of the benefits of a lot of these climate tech startups is that they're niche and they're sort of solving these niche problems that can sort of have like outsized impacts. They are niche. Like yeah. it would be much harder to consolidate a lot of these companies together as opposed to I can see five years down the road, there's one of these AI startups is going to be like a platform that serves healthcare and serves mobility and serves like these different areas. So I definitely, as far as like being an investor, you are right that maybe unless you're one of those big AI losers. Yeah. <laughs> but there is definitely maybe more room for good like exit activity from that space. Yeah. Well, with that, you are both our climate correspondent and our impact investor. Thanks, Becca. <laughs> I will be our capitalist for some reason today. And everyone else, thank you for listening to the show. This was a fun week and appreciate you all for sticking with us. We will be back to normal programming next week. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak and TechCrunch senior reporter Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week. 